On this edition of Private Club Radio, we discuss the election results and what that means for your club. And I'll give you my top three mistakes in membership marketing and what your club can do to avoid them. Let's go. Welcome to Private Club Radio, your weekly source for industry education, news, and discussion. Broadcasting from Tampa, Florida, ladies and gentlemen, here is your host, Gabriel Aloisi. Thanks for joining me today on the show. The election is over, and I'm sure that comes as a relief to many of you, whether your candidate won or lost. That means our Facebook feeds can go back to being filled with cats and babies and our water cooler talk can be about that hit new primetime comedy or what was on HBO last Sunday night. I'm ready for that. I bet you are too. Some exciting things for you on today's episode. First off, we're going to unveil a new segment on the show, which I'm really excited to bring you. As you may know, we've had a number of great organizations come on as sponsors of this show. Most recently, we welcomed the National Club Association. The NCA is the only organization that actively lobbies the U.S. Congress with a specific focus on the needs of the private club industry. And they also serve as an advocate for private clubs in the regulatory agencies, state houses, and courts. After having their president and CEO, Henry Wallmeyer, their vice president of government relations, Brad Steele, and many of their board members on this show, I was thrilled to bring them on as a show partner because I think they have a ton of value to bring. We're calling this segment Club Perspectives, and on this first edition, Brad Steele will join us to walk through last Tuesday's elections. We all know the shock that was the presidential race, but Brad will also take us through the other key races in the House and Senate. Find out the impact these results will have on the NCA's lobbying efforts for the private club industry. After that, I'm going to play you a couple clips from my appearance on another club industry podcast. I had some pretty shocking things to say on how clubs are marketing themselves, and I wanted to make sure that you heard it straight from the horse's mouth. So make sure to stay tuned after Brad. And now it's time for Club Perspectives. Presented by the National Club Association. Welcome to the inaugural edition of Club Perspectives presented by the National Club Association. Each month on this segment, we'll be discussing all sorts of topics ranging from advocacy to government relations and from lifestyle trends to governance. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Brad Steele, the NCA's Vice President of Government Relations and General Counsel. Brad, how are you doing today? Doing wonderfully well. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Of course, last Tuesday, we just had our elections. The results are in, and I wanted to get your perspective on some of those key races. Let's first start with the House. Absolutely. I can tell you that the great news is, is that I've now had about a moment or two of sleep uh, and, uh, <laughs> sure. and can at least review some of these numbers. And uh, I've got to say, we had a, a tremendous success from a pro-club, pro-growth perspective in the House of Representatives. As you all remember, and I know your listeners certainly know that before the election, the Republicans had control of 247 seats. The Democrats had 188. After the election, uh, there will be 241 Republicans and approximately 194, we anticipate 
anticipate Democrats. So uh, there's one seat currently that is uh, outstanding. We anticipate that it'll take about a week or so for that to be completely settled. There are also two races that are in runoffs, uh, but those are one race is actually pitting a Republican against a Republican. Okay. So naturally, there'll be a Republican winner. Okay. And in the other, it's a heavy, heavily Republican district. Both of those runoffs are in Louisiana. So we can say with confidence that at this point, it seems the uh, Democrats that only were able to gain uh, a net of six seats in the House of Representatives. Now, from my uh, projections, and indeed everybody's, there was an expectation of probably between 10 to 15. So clearly, uh, again, the issues and the policies that are pro-growth, pro-club seem to resonate, and they resonated very well in those districts that were swing, that were really up and uh, toss-up, able to be taken by the Democrats, and just weren't. So from a perspective, again, from the, the private club industry's perspective, we were ecstatic about the fact that it will once again be Speaker Paul Ryan uh, from Wisconsin who will retain the gavel. And uh, and even though the Republican uh, majority has been decreased, it has only been decreased by that six uh, total net seats. So they'll have a majority of 23 seats. Extremely important. Uh, obviously, it's very difficult to pass anything in the House of Representatives with the various factions, not only in the Republican Party, but in the Democratic Party. But the reality is with a 23-seat majority, uh, Speaker Ryan will be able to continue to push for those kinds of policies that we've been pushing for. It's always been our bastion. Our benefit has been the House of Representatives, and we're pleased that voters across the United States uh, continued to send back their uh, members in a, in a large uh, majority. Again, 23-seat majority for the House uh, Republicans is a, is a very good thing. Got some fascinating races across the United States that actually came up. One of them, uh, a Republican incumbent, a 12-term member of the House of Representatives, 12 terms, wow. 24 years. Yep. Uh, John Micah, a Republican from Florida, uh, unfortunately, he is chairman of, a, well, still is, but will, will no longer be chairman of the Transportation Committee. So he certainly was a powerful member of the House of Representatives, yeah. but was not successful in his reelection bid. I actually in, interviewed him back in, I think, 2006 when I was working on yeah. Capitol Hill. So pretty, pretty Absolutely. No, he's been around forever. Yeah. Outstanding member uh, and always very, very supportive of our industry coming from, uh, you know, Florida and the Sunshine State is uh, obviously heavily, heavily golf and uh, club uh, oriented. So he understood and was aware of our issues and we we're sorry to see him go. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, another Republican uh, uh, from the Florida uh, Sunshine State also lost. This time he lost to Florida's former Republican governor, Charlie Crist. Charlie Crist, Charlie right. Crist won uh, his seat, but of course he won that congressional seat as a Democrat. Exactly. Being Representative David Jolly. He started so, uh, from it, Republican, then he switched to Independent, and then he became a Democrat. So he's he's run the whole gamut, Mr. Chris. He's there. been <laughs> across the board and uh, ran for Senate. That was not successful uh, after his gubernatorial run. Uh, yeah, turned independent and uh, then decided that this was the seat for him to be reengaged in elective office and was successful. So an interesting term there. Yeah. And finally, I think one of the, the more fascinating aspects of, uh, of the history of politics is what took place in Wyoming. Former Vice President uh, Dick Cheney's daughter, Liz Cheney, uh, won the uh, seat, uh, the at-large congressional seat in the state of Wyoming that her father once held. Wow. So uh, she was at uh, two years ago interested in running for the United States Senate in Wyoming and would have had a very contentious primary against Senator uh, Mike Enzi, who is a strong supporter of clubs and as a small businessman knows our issues. So we weren't really excited about the potential of that primary. 
she uh, dropped out of that and uh, instead uh, bided her time and found that uh, the Wyoming congressional seat, which came open, uh, was uh, probably a better fit for her. And she is now taking over a seat her father once held. So kind of interesting wow. with regard to the House and fascinating, yeah. but that's the way it always works, right? Sure. A little bit of name recognition for Charlie Crist, a little bit of name recognition for Liz Cheney, uh, and uh, clearly no name recognition for me when I ran for Congress <laughs> in 2000. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're pretty bullish on on what hap- on went, went down on Tuesday, at least in the House. Let's turn it over to the Senate. Tell us about what happened there, Brad. Exactly. Well, the Senate actually was uh, was almost even better than what we had anticipated from uh, from the House of Representatives side of things. We expected, with uh, the tremendous number of Democrats, uh, or rather Republicans, up for re-election and the limited number of Democrats who were up for re-election, that there was going to be a significant amount of turnover. And indeed, there was a strong speculation with all of the races uh, that uh, the National Republican Senatorial Committee had to put money into that there just wouldn't be the resources, there wouldn't be the ability for Republicans to maintain control uh, and therefore have a pro-club, pro-growth perspective continue in the 115th Congress. But lo and behold, uh, much as this surprising election showed us uh, in many areas of the electorate, uh, Senate Republicans were extremely successful. Uh, Pre-election, we had 54 Republicans and 46 Democrats in the upper chamber. Following the election, we have 51 Republicans and 48 Democrats. We have one outstanding race, and that is once again in the state of Louisiana. Uh, they have a runoff set uh, for, again, December 10th. Our expectation is, though, that runoff will lead to another Republican. So at the end of the day, I expect that Republicans will have only lost two seats uh, in uh, this really uh, not the best of all possible environments to run in. So really a a big change uh, uh, just in terms of what everyone's thought was. There's no way the Republicans are going to maintain majority. It couldn't happen. And now, lo and behold, not only did they maintain it, they maintained it with two extra seats. Uh, Potentially, it was going to be a 50-50 tie. So uh, really a, a, a big change there. Republicans held seats in Florida with Senator Marco Rubio and Missouri with Senator Roy Blunt and North Carolina with Senator Richard Burr. Those latter two were never really on the radar as potential problems, but had very, very strong Democratic candidates, but Mm -hmm. came through. Mm -hmm. We're successful in uh, Ohio with Senator Rob Portman keeping his seat, Senator Pat Toomey in Pennsylvania, and then finally Senator Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. The uh, latter two, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, uh, Senator Toomey and Senator uh, Johnson, were both supported by the National Club Association's Club Pack, were ecstatic about their re-election. They were in extremely difficult races, and uh, and ultimately their understanding of small business issues, I think, helped push them through to be successful. Republicans also were successful in an open seat, a seat that was held by a Republican who decided to retire uh, in the state of Indiana. And that was a very, very tough race, considering the Democratic opponent was a former two-term governor and two-term senator. So a well-known individual who uh, uh, really was expected to take that seat uh, without much of a problem. And thankfully, Republicans were able to maintain it. And again, that helps us keep that pro-growth, pro-club perspective in the Senate. Democrats kept seats in California, Maryland, and Nevada that were open. Those incumbent uh, senators decided to retire, but Democrats were successful in those states. Those states weren't surprising. Uh, they are heavily Democratic, so we expected that those seats would be uh, kept in the hands of Democrats. But interestingly, they, they did have some success. They did flip two, as I mentioned, Republican seats. Those Republican seats were uh, uh, in Illinois uh, with Senator Mark Kirk 
and in New Hampshire with Senator Kelly Ayotte. Uh, we supported Senator uh, Kelly Ayotte. We're very, very sorry that she was not able to be successful. She, as your listeners may recall, uh, was the lead sponsor in the United States Senate for the STARS Act. Mm -hmm. So we we really wanted to see her continue. Uh, unfortunately, she just uh, got uh, caught up in uh, what was a very difficult presidential race, and that turned around and, and really, I think, affected her. But think? all in all, great, uh, great result. Go ahead. Who do you think may take the reins on that on the STARS Act there, Brad? Well, I think that we will. We've had Senator Marcus King, who is an independent from Maine, as the other co-sponsor. Uh, I think at this juncture, the really good news is because of the presidential election, we may have some opportunities to uh, be able to to, to work. At, I think at a broader fix rather than just a very small fix of the Stars Act, maybe a broader fix of Obamacare uh, with uh, President-elect Trump, and that might be a good segue for us to yeah to well, sneak into that. That's right. Yeah, the big the big headline of the night, obviously, the presidential race, and we now know the incumbent is uh, Mr. Donald Trump. Take us through what happened there. Uh, uh, just an amazing result, uh, and I can tell you that as I spoke with our members and our board, uh, I, <laughs> I'm eating crow, but but happily eating crow. Uh, my expectation, as uh, as most uh, of my colleagues here in Washington, was that there really was a very very slim chance that uh, Donald Trump could ever be elected president. That uh, Secretary Clinton had a clearer path, uh, and uh, I think, uh, well, she found just exactly how tough it is. Right. to run, run for president. And, uh, and indeed, when you look at the numbers, uh, it's, it's quite fascinating. Total vote was uh, about 60 million for uh, Secretary Clinton, about 59 million, 700,000 for uh, Donald Trump. So she certainly won the, uh, the, the popular vote. A lot of that has to do with the Western states and California most, uh, and, and New York mostly. But the reality is the Electoral College vote went the, the way that I can, no one anticipated. Uh, at this point, we have the total will end up being, being 306 for Donald Trump and 232 for Secretary Clinton. I was absolutely uh, interesting. shocked. Yeah. It is absolutely amazing. When we were watching it, some of the states that were very critical, most importantly, at least to me, was North Carolina. When he got North Carolina, then you could see the path open in different ways. And then he got the other battleground state of Florida. And once he did that, boy, there were there were really some opportunities for him to be successful. Iowa and Ohio, other battleground states, we anticipated he was going to win. But he really had to get North Carolina for there to be uh, an opportunity. And when he got North Carolina, then we saw the dominoes fall. And most importantly, those dominoes became Michigan. Well, Michigan still sort of up in the air, but we expect it to be uh, ultimately called for him, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Interestingly, those three states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, have not gone Republican since 1988 for both Michigan and Pennsylvania and 1984. For Wisconsin. Wow. So there was no thought in anyone's mind that those states were truly in play based on the simple fact that at the end of the day, those Democratic voters go home. They come back to the Democratic candidate because they've done so historically for you know nearly 30 years. So when you start to break down and wonder, well, how, how did that happen? How did Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin flip? The real answer turns to, I think, the populist message and the jobs message that Trump had. One fascinating aspect of, of the numbers when we really crunched them was that uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton only beat Donald Trump by 8% when we talk about union voters. Mm -hmm. And that was the lowest that any Democrat has had since 
1984. Yeah, that's usually Walter a stronghold. Exactly. A- absolutely. So having only, of course she won. There was no question that she was going to win with the number of u- union voters. That wasn't the question. The question is by how much. For instance, uh, President Barack Obama won by 18% over Mitt Romney. So clearly that 10% was a significant problem. And indeed, if it was the lowest since Walter Mondale's you know, traumatic and, and huge loss in 84, then we know that, that, that there's there's really where Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin uh, came from. That's how he won it. Indeed, in Ohio, one of those very, very important battleground states, she actually lost the union vote to Donald Trump by nine points. Wow. So you, you, you know that at the end of the day, when he would say, look, trade is important and the lost jobs need to stop and we need to reinvest in America to make sure that there's a tax policy that allows businesses to come back to the United States, it worked. It resonated with those blue-collar union voters who were the Reagan Democrats in the 80s. Yeah. So he brought those back, and we haven't, as, as a, you know, a, a Republican uh, uh, candidates, they have never been able to do that, obviously, as I say, since 88 and 84. So it was a fascinating result, and that result then, I think, uh, really gives uh, a pretty large mandate to uh, Donald Trump for him to do the kinds of things that not only were, uh, will help those disaffected blue-collar workers who come back to the Republican Party, but but everybody, and that includes uh, private clubs. Uh, it's an interesting juxtaposition, right, those blue-collar workers and private clubs, but what we all are are small business employers and employees, and I think that's that, that, that nexus, that connectivity is the line that will allow uh, this next four years to be very good for clubs. Yeah. Exactly. Well, let's talk about the the next couple of years here. Definitely, in terms of with Republican control of the House, Senate, and the pres- presidential seat, what sorts of legislation are you really bullish on, Brad? Well, we're we're really excited about the significant opportunity that we believe uh, lies ahead, uh, and it's been basically eight years where the National Club Association, the private club industry, has not been able to to do too much of anything except play defense. Uh, and it's been a, a very tough defensive battle, considering there are a lot of guns pointed at us. So now what we have the opportunity to do is first take a real bite out of those things that have been exceptionally bad for private clubs. First and foremost, Obamacare. Uh, that will likely be repealed and replaced. But I want your listeners to understand that it's going to take some time. But the benefit of repealing and replacing that means, number one, things like the employer mandate that every club has had to deal with with a, a peculiar definition of what a full-time worker is, mm-hmm. someone working 30 hours or more. I mean, everybody knows that a full-time worker is 40 hours. Right. So that's, that's going to be gone. Seasonal worker issues, those who've never been offered insurance before but now have to be offered insurance, that's going to be removed. So those are bottom-line financial issues that are extremely important for clubs. Add to that things like the Cadillac tax, the health insurance tax, and the metal devi- medical device tax, all of which increased clubs premiums will now go. So that's really what I think we're, we're excited about based on the fact that that's something we didn't expect, didn't hope, didn't assume could happen. But because of the result, we turned around and now, now we've got the opportunity for really good success. Wow. Uh, and that's, that's huge for the private club industry. Well, it sounds Secondly, like I think, your sleep is not going to necessarily increase, though, here. Because <laughs> you're no, going to be no, working that's right. hard for us. We'll, we'll be working hard to make sure that that goes. And as I say, it'll take some time for it to go. I think the second and probably the most important thing that I want to make sure your listeners know about is that the Department of Labor's overtime rule will be altered. But there's a huge caveat there. 
I don't want any of your listeners to think that this rule will not go into effect starting December 1st. So it will. Come hell or high water, this president is not going to provide any relief to his final legacy policy. But when January 20th rolls around and the inauguration is completed, I think that there will be significant opportunities for us to be successful in changing this rule. The president-elect has indicated that he wanted to either phase in or have some additional or other adjustments to the club, uh, to the rule for clubs, for small businesses. Uh, and that certainly will take some time, but I expect it to come to pass within the first six months of 2017. What it is, uh, we're not sure yet, but we will certainly be discussing with the administration that this overtime rule has to change. So we are going to have to have it start December 1, but I, I do see that there's a potential, a very strong potential for light at the end of the tunnel regarding that additional cost and that impact to employees. It's not just clubs' bottom lines. It's also the employees who are affected with less opportunities, less growth potential, less shift opportunities, and ultimately left less money, even though this overtime rule is billed as you workers are going to get more. Uh, that's, that's never been the case. It's, it wasn't going to work that way. And now uh, we're pleased that the election result gives us an opportunity to make a change there. So we do see that light uh, at the end of the tunnel. There is a uh, a parting of the clouds uh, over the Department of Labor now that we've got uh, a Trump presidency. Well, Brad, thank you so much for coming on today, sharing that knowledge with us. We really appreciate it. I do want to remind listeners to check out nationalclub.org. That is the association's website and learn about all the issues that they're working on to help us in the private club industry. Brad, thanks so much for being on today, sir. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Gabe. Our webinar series resumes January the 4th with special guest Michael Crandall. Visit privateclubradio.com slash education to register today. So a few weeks ago, I had the honor of being a guest on the Club Sense podcast, a very excellent show produced by the folks over at VGM Club. Cam Schultz, the show's host, was a guest here on Private Club Radio back on episode 34, if you'll remember. So Cam invited me onto his show, and we had a lively discussion about membership marketing and my outlook on the golf industry. In this clip, we discussed the top three mistakes that clubs are making with their membership marketing. Have a listen. Now, as you said, in, in your past, you worked in, in other industries and in, in different marketing capacities for those industries. What, what do you see as a differentiation point between other business categories in the private club world? Wow, I think it's there's so many things in the private club world when it comes to membership marketing that I would say we're really doing wrong and I'd like to see changed. I know it's, it's not nice to say that, but I think it's the truth. Um, for me, there's, there's really a few main points to consider here. Uh, how things are done in the private club agent in the private club world versus how they're done in in the rest of the world or different industries out there, and of course there's historical context to that. I mean, clubs didn't ever want to market themselves in the past, but right. you know after after the economic changes that have happened, a lot of clubs have have really been their hands been forced where they have to actually go out there and start to look for new members. So. I think there's a lot of ways that this industry can improve, and that's that's really what I'm I'm, I'm about helping helping these clubs actually market them, their membership a little better. Um, the first thing I would say is is how we're going about our marketing messages. The standard 
club ads that I see out there, they're always really appealing to logic when they when they create their club communications, whether that's social media, whether it's a billboard you drive by or an ad you read in a magazine, for instance. Clubs really focus on these logical reasons to become a club member of their club. So it might be we have a Fazio designed course. We have a 250 seat formal dining room. We've got hard true tennis court. Those are all really great logical features. But why do people actually buy a private club membership? It's for a completely different reason. It's really for emotional reasons. So I always coach my clients and, and, and even folks that I come across in the private club world is to start to market your club and your membership to appeal to the emotional side of the brain because that's where purchasing decisions really happen. Uh, if In the classic example I use when I'm, when I'm speaking or, or going about, I tell people, think about the last car you purchased. Did you buy that car because it had more steel per square inch than its competitor? Or because it had more stitching on the leather? I mean, that would be a really logical reason to buy a car, right? Like, um, you know, this car for $35,000, I'll get more steel than, than, than its competitor. Right. That would be a really logical reason. That's not why we buy cars. We buy cars because we feel good behind the wheel, because we're going to impress our friends, because we like the way it, it handles, because it's friendly for the environment. These are all emotional reasons to purchase an automobile. And that's really all the purchasing decisions that folks make come from that emotional side of their brain. And so rather than trying to appeal to all these logical things like, you know, how many tennis courts you have, who designed your golf course, what style of architecture the clubhouse is, we really want to appeal to those emotional benefits, the the feeling of camaraderie, the feeling of safety and security that a private club can provide, the passion and the excellence and the history and tradition. Those are the emotional benefits. And I think that's one way that uh, if we change that dialogue, we can be much more effective in bringing members into our clubs. Dave, you hit on that point even more in depth on a really nice uh, in a really nice three-part blog series that that our listeners can uh, read at aloisi.com. And it, it you're spot on there. You, it, it's really tough to say my twenty thousand square foot clubhouse is nicer than your twenty thousand <laughs> square foot clubhouse. Exactly. Exactly. Um, what are what are two other common mistakes that as you uh, gain clients around the country? What are the other two common mistakes that you see in their their mar- current marketing efforts? Well, there are two. You had mentioned it's a three part series, so I'll give you the other two. And I haven't written the third article, so you're going to get a sneak peek at what that third one is. But spoiler alert: <laughs> the first one I call it membership is not a sprint. And the reason I say it's not it's not a sprint is because that's you know, that's the classic line that you hear sales managers tell their tell their folks, right? Sure. Whether it's in, in the club business coming from a board or a GM to the membership director, or whether it's out there in, in society. Like, you know, sales isn't a sprint. That's a great trite thing to say, right? Um, and, and then usually they'll say, well, it's a marathon. But for me, it's not really either. It's, it's really a series of short sprints, more like a relay race. So okay. I think, again, we're sort of fundamentally selling private club membership the wrong way. And the classic way that someone comes you know, to the membership office, they, they get what I call the three-hour tour, even though it's sometimes it's like one hour, but I like that Gilligan's Island reference. So sure. they'll, shuffle, you know, they'll shuffle a member from you know, the golf course to the, maybe the tennis facilities, to the pools, the dining room, and they end up back in the membership director's office, and they're asked to make basically a purchasing decision, for lack of a better term, right? But the, what happens is 
that's not how, again, how we buy in modern times. That's not how we make our, you know, financial decisions. And, and buying a private club membership is, is a financial decision. So, you know, how do people buy nowadays? They do a lot of research online. They, they study companies. They follow them on their social media. It's really a 30-day process. And so what happens is over the course of 30 days, I really feel that clubs need to start to develop a plan, a marketing attack that kind of makes your club a habit because habit-forming technology is, is really the holy grail. We all have cell phones in our pocket, for instance. And mm-hmm. what happens? You get that little red notification icon and you've got to check that email or you've got to look at that Facebook photo or, or whatever the case may be. And these technology companies have really found that you know, humans are wired for this the, the, to create these habits in our minds. So how can you actually create a habit in the mind of someone who wants to you know, buy a private club membership? Rather than that three-hour tour, why not bring them back to the club over the course of 30 days? Maybe it's the first time you invite them you know, for that tour, but maybe in week two, you invite them to have a nice dinner at the club or to enjoy a member event uh, so they can sort of experience the club in a different way. Maybe you bring them back the third time and you give them a free golf lesson or um, you know, some time at the pool. Basically, getting people back over the course of 30 days so that they associate the good times with your club. And so rather than, you know, this is our shot to, to get them to sign, sign on the dotted line in that, in that one hour we have with them, let's really think about the membership process as a 30-day process where you're building a habit. And so I think that is one thing that's missing in a lot of clubs. And again, I totally get that that method might not be right for every club. Like maybe it's a very exclusive club and they don't just want guests walking in all the time. I, I totally sure. get that. But I think when used, when used with some discretion, I think it could be a really powerful way to, to get people to, to become new members of your club. The, the third piece again, which has not come out, but what, what I've noticed is that membership directors and private clubs always try to sell our top tier product. And what's that for every club? It's, it's a full golf membership, right? But if you look at any industry outside of the world of private clubs, this is almost never the case, right? You're not going to generally buy the top of the line S class Mercedes for the first Mercedes you ever buy, you know, once you, once you become successful, for instance. Absolutely. Or certainly not if it's your first car you buy uh, coming up. So why are, why are we always focusing on selling the top tier membership? Um, if you, again, you look at any product, any service out there, there's generally an introductory offer and we work people through our sales funnel until, until they become, you know, more acquainted with our brand and really become brand champions. Then we sell them that top tier product. Again, you're probably not going to buy an Apple computer. You're probably not going to buy the top of the line Apple computer unless you just have money to blow. You're probably going to buy something that fits your needs at the time. So for me, I think this is a really important distinction that, you know, we shouldn't be selling, well, always at least focusing on the full golf membership. What if we focused on selling an introductory membership, like a social membership, mm-hmm. which historically the social members are sort of the, the bane of, <laughs> you know, they're the, the redheaded stepchild children right. of the private club industry, right? But if you actually can en- en- enact a plan, and I go to so many clubs and I say, you know, what's your plan to move someone from a social member to a tennis member to a full golf member? And they're like, well, we don't have a plan. I said, well, you know, the, the, the person who bought from you is the person who's most likely to buy from you again. And actually, um, there's actually been some research on this. Rick Coffey, a buddy of mine over at Club Essential, yeah. said that it's yep. 2.2 is the percent. So it's 
it costs a club 2.2 times more to find a new member than to actually retain an existing member. <laughs> so it's more expensive to go to keep going after these new full golf members. Why not focus on people who have already bought from you, who have already purchased, who are maybe our social members, and work them up your product chain and get them to that level. Um, so focus on internal rather than external marketing. And so for me, that's the big third piece that's missing. The breadth rather than the depth of what you're trying to get out yep, there. Yep, exactly. So what what are your thoughts on that, Cam? You know, like, well, I I think you're spot on, Gabe. And I I was going to ask, do you do you hear from your clientele, your clients, that this maturation process, this drip, quote unquote, drip campaign philosophy, leads to longer, more enduring clients? You know, I know I know with the economic downturn, it seemed like everybody did turn it into a sprint, mm-hmm. uh, but the, sometimes the problem with someone that buys right away is they're not your lifelong customer either. That's exactly the problem is, you, you know, you, these membership directors and, and marketing folks are given these goals and almost unattainable metrics that they have to be held by, by the general manager, by their board or, you know, their membership committees or what have you. And so that what do they do? They just get whoever they can get in the door and the relationship never re- matures. So just as many people as you get in, maybe you get in 30 members in a year, but you're losing 28, you know? So, yeah. you know, it, again, it's, it's, if you, if that stat to me is very powerful, if it's 2.2 times more expensive for a club to, to go after a new member. And I really think that's the low end. Honestly, I think it's probably, if we really dove deeper, it might even be more expensive to market. Uh, Rick, you know, Rick Sandbagger, he's, he's sandbagging us a little bit there. <laughs> he might be, <laughs> but you know, even at 2.2 per times, uh, you know, of a rate, I think it's, it's, it's very telling that, you know, you should be focusing more on, on working those, those other members and keeping them happy. So that was a little taste of the interview that I had with Cam Schultz. Hope you enjoyed that little piece. There's a lot more about that we dove into millennials and some other topics so if you want to check it out i definitely recommend you subscribe to the club sense podcast sense spelled c-e-n-t-s like dollars and cents and check out that wonderful show another guy who's doing something really exciting in the club industry that's going to do it for today's show i hope you will join me back here next week for another edition of private club radio And until next week, here's to your membership success. Just because this round is over doesn't mean you can't enjoy the 19th hole. Check out privateclubradio.com for more. Private Club Radio is brought to you by the Private Club Agency, the premier marketing and consulting firm dedicated to helping clubs increase and retain their membership. Visit privateclubagency.com to learn more.